Nicole is from Arkansas. How did her career lead to privacy law? She began work selling CDs at Record Rack. The GDPR led her down the privacy track. And uh, with that, I am thrilled to introduce Nicole Gilbo. Uh, she is the data privacy manager at uh, API Group. And pleasure to uh, introduce you to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So uh, let's get started. So you grew up, you weren't born in Arkansas, but uh, you grew up in Arkansas. So did you always envision, uh, what, what did you want to be as a kid? Did you always envision yourself being involved in uh, privacy compliance? <laughs> Man, I don't know that anybody ever starts out thinking they'll be in compliance, do they? <laughs> no, I think I originally probably thought that I would be like a vet or a doctor or something in the medical field. But um, later on, it, it kind of seemed pretty pretty relevant or I mean pretty I was pretty confident that I wasn't going to be in the medical field <laughs> science so wasn't my thing <laughs> get into that so just you just mean in uh what, what was that point did you sort of come to that uh, realization um I just probably when I was in high school um I took all of the obligatory chemistry and physics and all of that but just really couldn't get into it I mean I made okay grades because I studied hard but I just had absolutely zero interest in any of that <laughs> Yeah, I hear that. Okay. And um, so your first job in high school was selling uh, CDs as a job from the past, but uh, yeah, get into that a little bit and, and uh, yeah, what, what you did with your first job. <laughs> Showing my age there. Um, <laughs> so yes, Record Rack was a local, um, a local store that sold CDs. Even there were even still some cassette tapes um, that were sold when I was there. And um, they also had, you know, t-shirts and you know, different things like that from, from like the, the music industry. Um, and so that was first job, um, that I started as a matter of fact, my first day was on my 16th birthday. Um, and they were like, Hey, come on in and help us with inventory. So I was there all night on my birthday. Wow. Um, and so, you know, I really think that it's important for, for everybody to have a little bit of experience in retail because it certainly, um, helps you as you grow to be a consumer, um, of products and have to deal with the public and 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 personnel who are working in retail. It helps you have a little bit more empathy for them <laughs> in their situation. Yeah, yeah, great advice. And uh, <laughs> so then for college, you went on to uh, Arkansas State. So talk about you know your time in college. You stayed uh, in state there. Was it were you commuting or you know talk about the, your college experience? Sure. So I was on. Um, full scholarship to Arkansas State University. Um, so I did live in town. I started out in the dorm. They wanted everybody to live in the dorm um, and it was paid for, but it just wasn't really my thing. I didn't have a great suite mate. Um, they stayed up really late and I had super early classes. So I ended up moving out of the dorm into an apartment with one of my sorority sisters. Um, and after, you know, guy kind of acclimated to my schedule and the amount of hours that I had, got a job um, working as a hostess at a restaurant in town that had just opened. Um, it was also a bar in the evenings. And so um, got to see a lot of the folks that I went to school with and, um, you know, get to know folks in the community. Because what's funny is that I'm, I'm back in Jonesboro now. That's where Arkansas State is. And so I've, my, my life has made like a full, uh, full 360. I'm back here in Jonesboro. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's great. Now, 
talk a little about some of the uh, jobs you had during college. You were worked at a restaurant. You're a bank teller. Yes, I was a bank teller for a bit. And one of my favorite things about working at the bank was working the drive-thru. Um, the little, the one with the drawer, the, the, the drawer drive-through, um, or, um, you know, having to work the tubes, but you always had to do more transactions when you worked the tubes because there was multiples and usually bigger transactions came through for the drawer. So you got to just focus on your one customer. Um, and it was interesting, the, the type of clientele that came by the branch that I worked at, it was, you know, downtown. And so it was all the folks who had like boutique stores and, you know, little restaurants here and there. And so it was good to get to meet some of those folks and, um, I was, was really young at the time. And so, um, um, it was, you know, kind of my first foray into, you know, dealing with, um, business owners and things, um, you know, in my daily life. Interesting. And, you know, do you still think about that today working, uh, with, with business owners and, you know, and you work in privacy now? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, especially working in the, the banking industry, um, you know, one of the things I think that you don't maybe consider as a consumer is the reason that banks have the rules that they have for, you know, checking IDs. You know, there was always a customer or two who would be irritated at us, um, you know, because maybe they have a teller that they know and they work with on a regular basis. And so that person will cash their check for them without, you know, checking for their ID. And then, um, you know, I remember one day I got one of those, you know, regular clients, but it wasn't someone that I knew. And so I asked for his ID and he was very aggravated that I was asking for his ID. And I'm like, look, you know, I, you may know so-and-so, but I don't know you. And so wouldn't you rather that I make sure that this is you, this is your money before I just give it to somebody else. Um, and so I think, you know, that it has helped um, as far as, you know, from the privacy side of things, being able to help communicate to other consumers, you know, why some of the privacy laws are being put into place in the way that they're, you know, out there to help protect you as a consumer, as opposed to just, you know, making your life difficult or having a bunch of cookie banners pop up every time you go to a website, you know, things like that. Right, right. Putting it in uh, how it actually, you know, is, is helping them. And uh, yeah. get, get into that. Do you think that the the privacy, you know, cookie banners and et cetera are, are generally benefiting uh, consumers? I think that they likely are so long as, you know, the cookie banners are set up to actually do the things that they claim to do. <laughs> so that's just on the business side, um, you know, making sure that when you click the button that something actually happens. Um, right. But yeah, nobody likes getting all the all the spam email and, you know, all of that, that's obnoxious and having to go through and unsubscribe from everything. And so, yeah, if I can go on there onto the cookie banner and say, turn off these advertising cookies, I don't want any of your stuff coming to me later. Um, you know, then I think that that's super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. No, great perspective. And, uh, okay. Interesting. Now, I think you continued on as a, a bank teller after college, you moved to California. So, uh, get into that a little bit. I did. Yeah. So um, fun fact is, so, you know, I didn't, I, I don't hail from Arkansas originally. I actually do um, come from Southern California, but I left there when I was very young, um, but still have a lot of family there. Um, my uh, former husband, when we got married, was a United States Marine and he was stationed on um, the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps Air, Air Ground Combat Center um, in 29 Palms, California. This place, um, Everybody calls it the stumps. So if there's anybody out there listening that's familiar with the Marine Corps, you'll uh, you'll probably be familiar with the stumps or uh, 29 Palms. There's not much there. 
in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Um, and, you know, I used to laugh when people would be like, oh, you're living in California. It must be so great. And I'm like, not really where I am, um, particularly. But um, it was really close to a lot of really great places. Like it was just a couple hour drive to San Diego, just a couple hour drive to Vegas, you know, a lot of places that, you know, from here in Arkansas would cost quite a bit to even just get to. So that part was nice. But yes, I worked as um, as a bank teller again um, on one of the, the on-base banks. So um, the way it was, you know, back then, back in the day, um, when Marines would go to boot camp, um, they had two places to go. They could go to Paris Island or they could go to the uh, San Diego, MCRD San Diego. And if you went in San Diego, they automatically opened you a bank account for your paychecks and stuff at Pacific Marine Credit Union. If you went to Paris Island, you automatically got an account with Fort Sill National Bank. Um, and so, you know, we had branches for both of those banks on the uh, on the base where I worked. Um, and so it was mostly, you know, both branches like fighting over, you know, customers and trying to retain the ones that that had the, the accounts set up originally um, with them when they were in boot camp. And, you know, just trying to help educate um, young Marines, especially on how to manage their money, um, because a lot of them were really young. You know, they're coming. This is their first duty station out of. Um, boot camp, a lot of them, it's, you know, kind of their first real, you know, steady paycheck that they're getting. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot that they want to go do. They want to go hang with their friends, um, but they're not necessarily making a ton of money. So, you know, trying to help them make good financial decisions as opposed to, you know, draining their bank account and going into their overdraft every month. Um, you know, so, so learned a lot more about the Marine Corps, um, while I was there. Um, I, I used to tell people that if I could work, um, in a bank with a bunch of Marines and, and the mouths that they have on them a lot of times that, you know, there's not a whole lot that can surprise me um, or, you know, make me uncomfortable. <laughs> so, uh, Now, how as a bank teller, were you able to kind of talk to them about, uh, you know, financial literacy and, and keeping uh, their, their finances in check? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times they would come in on, you know, on payday and, you know, they'd come in and they say, hey, I need to pull some cash out of my account. And so you go and you pull up their account screen and you see that, you know, when their paycheck came in, it was basically eaten up by, you know, the overdraft. Like they had like a $200 overdraft protection on their account. And so last month they had spent all their money, plus they spent $200 worth of overdraft. <laughs> and so now their check came in and now they've got like 50 bucks left. And it's like, oh, well, I can't live on $50. So, you know, what am I going to do now? And so just kind of counseling them through some of that and and just, you know, letting them know, hey, you may need to take a break this month and just kind of chill and hang around the base and, you know, that kind of thing instead of, you know, going out to Vegas or going, you know, to LA, you might just kind of have to hang around for a little while and let those funds build back up. Well, they ever take your advice? No. No, I didn't. But I bet you you that they remember, you know, as they've gotten older and they're like, man, you know, maybe I should start saving some money. Yeah, that's for sure. Okay, interesting. Now, uh, okay, so then you worked at, uh, I think in college too, you were thinking about working in uh, HR. So your next job was at Thrivent. You were an office manager there. So talk about that, that, uh, that role and and kind of how you tried to spin it in an HR type of way. Yeah. So um, when I was in college, I got my bachelor's in business management with an emphasis in human resources. I really wanted to work in HR. Um, I still find it extremely interesting and I love, you know, the people aspect of it. Um, But, 
you know, out of college, even with the degree, you know, with the emphasis area in HR, it was difficult to find a job in HR without any HR experience. You know, the the classic catch-22, um, even the entry-level positions, they wanted some level of experience in HR, you know, dealing with HR systems and this and that. And so, you know, in the absence of any opportunity to um, go directly into an HR role, um, a recommendation from one of my mentors, who was actually one of my um, one of my uh, professors at ASU, was find a job that's got some HR elements to it, and you know, work that job, and then on your resume, as you're applying for HR jobs, play up those you know HR elements, the things that you did in your role that were HR related. And so I was like, okay. Um, so there was quite a bit of that, you know, that we did. We screened um, applicant um, resumes and things for financial advisor positions and and that kind of thing. You know, we dealt with the employee stuff in the office and um, all of that. Well, then it kind of transitioned to where I ended up doing like the FINRA and SEC compliance documentation. So like there was always a big audit every year. Um, and so I ended up you know, being the one who was responsible for making sure that all of the financial advisors had their licenses up to date. And, you know, so I had this, it was for like the entire South region. And there were probably 75 financial advisors with a plethora of different um, licenses. So like the insurance licenses, you have to have one for every state, you know, where you're doing business. And so some of these guys would have 10 or 15 different licenses with you know, varying degrees of expiration date. Some of them were good for five years. Some of them were only good for a year. And so we had to keep up with those dates and send them reminders along to get everything updated. So keeping documentation of all of that, any contests or anything, you know, a lot of a lot of sales um, positions, they'll offer, you know, certain types of incentive, um, you know, competitions. So if you sell X amount, um, you know, you can go on a cruise or you can this, but there's, you know, a lot of legalities around that as well. So keeping all the documentation for that. Um, and then, you know, being kind of the main point of contact for the auditors, you know, when they actually came in to do the audit. Um, and so, you know, I found that I, that I liked compliance a bit, um, you know, and like I said earlier, I don't think anybody ever sets out to be in compliance. Um, and, you know, most people in an organization are like, Ugh, compliance, gross. Um, I don't want the compliance people coming around here like, go away. And, you know, so, uh, but it, it seemed like something that I was good at. And so, you know, from, from kind of that day forward, compliance was kind of my thing. Well, and what exactly was it about compliance that really uh, caught your attention? Um, I think probably because I'm like very type A person and very organized. And, you know, so there would be, you know, a list of requirements different things that you had to have for a particular audit. And so then, you know, going around and gathering up the evidence for, you know, those particular audit items and, and putting those forward to the auditor to be like, hey, here's what you asked for. And here I'm going to explain to you how what I'm providing to you is evidence of compliance with that particular item. Um, and I always felt like I was really good at it. I've always gotten stellar marks on, you know, any audit that I've participated in or, or led. Um, and so, you know, I feel like I do a good job of keeping up with the things that I need, gathering the different things maybe from other teams that I need, and then being able to put a story together um, to make sure that the auditors understand, you know, what we did and why we did it that way. Interesting. Now, is compliance just compliance? I mean, meaning, you know, you're in privacy now and you were in um, or financial compliance or uh, big differences? So for me, there's 
certain elements that span pretty much any area of compliance, right? So there'll be some kind of regulation, um, whether it be, you know, FINRA or SEC, or it be, um, you know, critical infrastructure protection or, um, you know, banking regulations or privacy regulations. Um, one of the things that I think about, you know, privacy that's very interesting that sometimes is a challenge is that a lot of these regulations for other areas, you see it a lot in banking, a lot of those are legacy regulations. They've been around for a while. They don't change a lot. And so what you run into a lot in organizations with compliance, regulatory change management, you know, compliance departments is there's a very black and white process around, you know, reviewing laws, reviewing compliance with laws, uh, making sure, you know, to check the box every year that you've done the thing um, to be sure that you're still in compliance, et cetera, et cetera. Now, privacy being that it changes so rapidly, it's difficult sometimes to fit privacy into some of those very black and white models that organizations use for compliance. So I would say that's, that's probably the biggest difference for me with privacy is just that it changes so much. You really never get to kind of the maintenance phase of a privacy regulation to be like, oh yeah, you know, we are compliant and now we just have to stay compliant because by the time you get to a point where you feel like you're hundred percent compliant, something else will have changed. And now you've got, you know, a new target date to look forward to for, for something that changed. Is that uh, rigmarole, uh, you know, something fun for you? Or what do you think about that? You know, I think it depends a little bit on the type of an organization that you're a part of. Um, I think it's great as a as an individual, as a consumer, you know, knowing that um, that that as a consumer, I'm getting more protections around my data, um, and you know, businesses aren't allowed to do as much with it without my permission and things like that. But from an organizational perspective, if you're in in a company that values privacy and understands that it's important, and you have the support that you need, I think that it's it's great to see the changes. If you're in an organization that is is less focused on privacy and, and doesn't really see the value in it, um, it can be a struggle because then you're you're trying to deal with a lot of change with not a lot of resources. Mm -hmm. Now, are a lot of those changes kind of, you know, you can anticipate them if you really know your stuff? I would say, you know, from if you if you've been around since GDPR days, you know, you can kind of expect that what's come that, well, we did expect it. Um, you know, that, that what they put out in Europe would eventually, you know, come around to the states. Um, mm -hmm. It started with California and you could kind of figure that other states were going to come forward with something similar. Um, but it's interesting. Sometimes some of the other international um, privacy laws that have come out will have, you know, like China's law has got, you know, some really specific criteria around, you know, risk assessments that have to go and be evaluated by um, the Chinese government before you can, you know, claim to be compliant with their with their law. Um, India has had one, you know, fluctuating out there for years, you know, and everybody's been kind of waiting for it to pass and and all that. And so, you know, you kind of start to sit back and you're like, okay, well, I guess nothing's going to happen over here. So I'm going to go work on the ones over here, um, you know, and then you'll be in the middle of getting something ready. And then some new requirement comes out somewhere else that you hadn't considered, um, you know, and things like that. So now there's all the AI stuff. So everything that we've been doing in privacy over the last several years, just around personal data in general, with you know the kickoff of of artificial intelligence being such a big thing now, um, and then you know trying to to mesh with all the different AI laws that are coming out. You know, I think that that's going to be kind of the next thing. With privacy. Now, so being that you've worked in 
in so many different uh, fields and compliance and the financial side, the critical infrastructure, privacy, you know, do you kind of come to expect certain places as jurisdictions are, you know, do, do you see a new law come out of India or come out of Europe and say like, yep, that's, it's typical, you know, spanning across different, uh, yep. different compliance groups. Yep. So um, definitely uh, Europe, for sure. Um, I feel like Europe does a good job of, you know, paying attention to some of the things that maybe we here on the States don't pay as much attention to. Um, but also the state of California, they're always coming out with some kind of a law for something. And California is usually kind of the pioneer for just about everything. And that can be, you know, from um, just different um, employment law. Um, then you've got, you know, privacy, of course, um, just different labor laws, all kinds of things coming out of California. And, you know, I think that that's, that's fantastic for the citizens, the residents of California. But then, you know, over here in Arkansas, we don't have nearly as many laws um, that are, that are, you know, helping us um, consumers and whatnot over here. So it's, it's almost kind of, you get a little jealous because you're like, oh, well, you guys have all this stuff. I'm over here. We have, we'll be one of the last states, I'm sure, to pass any kind of data privacy law. Yeah, interesting. Good, good uh, perspective. Now, getting back to the uh, your career, so you ended up getting your MBA. Talk about that. As far as I think, you know, a lot of compliance people are lawyers and whatnot. So, what, what, mm -hmm. how did you decide on that? And then, uh, you know, talk about the, the, that year that you spent getting your MBA. Yep. So, um, I, I'll be honest. I never wanted to go to grad school. Never. Um, I was, I was done with school. Um, I, I didn't want to go. Um, but when, you know, when I graduated with uh, my bachelor's degree was in 2008. And, you know, as you know, that was when the economy was kind of in the toilet. Um, there were a lot of people that I graduated with that couldn't get jobs. And so since they couldn't get jobs, they don't have to start paying on their loans yet. And so a lot of people just went to grad school because the longer that you were in school, you know, you got to defer those loan payments. And so now I'm over here at the same age as, you know, my peers with the same amount of experience, but we're all applying for the same type of entry level jobs and they have master's degrees and all I have is a bachelor's degree. So really going back to school for my MBA was almost like a necessity, you know, to, to continue to be, um, you know, sought after in the workforce and, and to have those opportunities for myself. So, um, that was kind of my motivation for going back to school. Um, after having been out for a little bit. Um, and I, um, at the time when I started, it was 2012. Um, there weren't a ton of online MBA programs at the time. There are many more now. And I'm super thankful for the fact that um, higher education is more accessible to people. Um, but one of the things I was concerned about was getting, you know, paying money for classes at, you know, what might end up just being like a diploma mill. Um, and so I wanted like a legit brick and mortar um, university to, you know, get my MBA from. And but I also didn't want to have to pay out of state tuition either. So <laughs> here in Arkansas, there were only a couple of online programs um, and I ended up going through Harding University in Searcy. It's a um, it's a private university. And I really enjoyed my time there. Actually, I did go ahead and go for graduation and walked at graduation because I'm like, hey, I spent all this time doing this. Uh, my daughter. I, when I started school, my daughter was six months old. Um, and my, my ex-husband, he was like, Hey, we're going to this graduation. Like this has taken, this was like a group effort, you know, um, raising our daughter and, and me going to school and working full time and all of that. 
Um, you know, so it was a, it was a good experience. I appreciated the flexibility with the online program, but I will say that, you know, you pay for the online piece with all of the extra kind of busy work that you have. Um, you know, so you're not having to go to class. So you'll certainly have to do a whole bunch of, you know, discussion board posts and things to, to justify the fact that you didn't have to go into class. And was that a full-time, uh, you were doing that full-time? It was, yes. Full-time and, oh, um, and working full-time too. Yeah. Uh, baby, right? Mm -hmm. That's two full-time jobs. So, wow. Well, okay. Yeah. Uh, now get into, so after that you were working, uh, you, you worked in critical infrastructure, um, uh, compliance, uh, talk about uh, that experience with the electric utility. Sure. So, um, the critical infrastructure protection was essentially around, you know, the way to ensure that the, the electric grid is secure. And so it was around, you know, programs that you put in place at, at the utility company to be sure that, um, you know, servers are patched for being sure that, you know, you're keeping an eye on all of the ports on your servers, um, making sure that um, you've got the appropriate, uh, the appropriate vulnerability scanning going on, that you've got, you know, programs in place to ensure the security of the assets that you have. Um, it was all very interesting. I have to say it was kind of my first job where there was really a big touch point in information security. And um, one of the things that I did in that role was um, I led the change management meetings once a week. And the very first one of those that I led, it was like a, everybody sit in the conference room and, you know, I had to put my screen, uh, my laptop up on the, the screen on the, on the wall. And so everybody was seeing what I'm typing and they were talking about doing, making some kind of a change to a Perl script. Um, I didn't know what that was. And so, you know, I typed it out just the way that, you know, any normal person spelling the word Perl, who's not involved in information security would do P-E-A-R-L to all of the Snickers in the room, because apparently in, uh, in this instance, it was not P-E-A-R-L, it was P-E-R-L. And boy, that was just the funniest thing that I could have done. Um, I was thoroughly embarrassed. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I learned a lot about, you know, about servers and network infrastructure and, you know, things like that, that I hadn't been exposed to yet. And that has certainly been helpful in my, you know, privacy roles that, you know, I've taken on in the future, just because there is such an interconnectedness between privacy and information security. Interesting. Just to feed my curiosity a little, I think a few years ago, there was something in uh, Texas, it was real cold and they lost their, their power because they weren't connected to everybody else. You know, you're in Arkansas one state over and I think they were they were fine right I don't know if you remember that but well you know here's what's funny and this is something else I didn't know until I worked at the electric utility it wasn't anything that I really dealt with but there's like a market for for power right like there are power markets like there's a, a southwest power pool there's um MISO and so basically like we own certain power plants at the electric utility I worked at but we weren't necessarily generating power for our customers. Like we would bid our plants in to run and then the power that we generated might go two or three states over and the power that, that we're getting for our customers may be coming from somewhere else. And so that's where you'll see like the different, the changes in the rates for electricity, you know, it becomes more expensive during the summer when more people are running their air conditioners because you're having to bid in you're having to run more plants 
to generate all this stuff. And so it costs more, but it was just very interesting because I had no clue that anything like that, you know, went on. I just assumed that the electric utility I worked for, they owned X number of plants and these were running and then that's what, you know, was, was providing electricity to our customers. So that was very interesting to me. Wow. And then Texas somehow isn't in that market. They have, um, I think Texas has their own. They're big. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. So moving on then. So I guess you had a little bit of a taste of, uh, your, you know, um, at least on the security side. Uh, so talk about the next job that you worked at at, uh, is it FIS or FIS? Mm -hmm. uh, Get into that. Yep. FIS, Fidelity Information System. So, um, I went over there, so they are a big player in the fintech space. Um, and so they provide a ton of products and platforms and software to banks. Um, so again, you know, kind of back into, to the banking world, um, not, you know, working directly for a bank, but, you know, supporting operations that support lots of banks um, globally. And so um, I was there, I worked in the risk department and what I did initially, which was kind of a carryover from, from the job um, at the electric utility, um, I was creating all of the training courses that the organization had to take. So, you know, using the software called Articulate to build out these training courses that people would have to click through for, um, you know, purposes of demonstrating InfoSec compliance, privacy compliance, you know, things like that. And so um, the privacy team was one of my kind of one of my customers um, as, you know, someone who was building courses because they had one. And so um, I, you know, had a, developed a really great relationship with the chief privacy officer. Um, his name was Cliff. He's amazing. I still speak with him regularly. Um, and then GDPR happened and it became apparent that we were going to have to do a lot more for compliance with privacy than we had done in the past. And so there was going to be a large scale project to be sure that all of our products, you know, because we weren't going to be the controller um, in a lot of instances, but we were going to be processors and we wanted to be sure that our products were set up in such a way that our clients who were going to be the controllers would have the things that they needed to be able to comply with the privacy laws. So um, they had posted a position and I applied for it and they brought me on um, to help them, you know, lead that project. And as with, as it is, you know, in a lot of different places, the privacy team was pretty small at that time. Um, some privacy teams, other places are still very small. I don't think I've ever been part of a really big privacy team. Um, and so, you know, no matter the level that I have been at in my career, I'm always, you know, somebody that gets her hands dirty and, and isn't afraid to do the work um, that's needed. But we went through that project and it was, you know, everybody focusing specifically on the lines of business that we're doing business over in Europe. Um, you know, this wasn't a thing in the States yet. You know, we pushed really hard to be able to do it, you know, enterprise wide because, you know, we could see down the path we could see that it was coming in the States, um, you know, but since there wasn't a regulatory need at the time, it was no, just, just work on things for Europe. And so GDPR went into effect uh, May, 2018, and then what, June or July, 2018, CCPA passed. And so we just got to turn around and do it all over again <laughs> for the U.S. businesses. Because I don't think that there was a U.S. business in the portfolio that didn't have at least one client in California. Well, um, you set so, it up originally the uh, yeah. way you wanted to, wouldn't have had that issue. Yeah, 
yeah, there would have been, there would have been a lot less work to do. Um, but um, I will say, I think we, we had a lot of lessons learned from the first project. And so I feel like when we, you know, went back and did it again um, for, um, for the U.S., I think that we um, were able to, you know, skip out on a, a couple of the issues that we had, had encountered during the, the first round of project. Um, and we didn't have to lean as heavily on consultants that time since we had kind of been through the rigmarole ourselves. Interesting. Yeah, I know you talked about this a little before and that uh, the other types of compliance have been around a long time and it's kind of, you know, you already know what to do. How do you deal with some kind of newfangled privacy law that hasn't really been seen before? What what uh, what's your approach there? Well, a lot of times it's a lot of I don't want to say guessing, but it is kind of guessing sometimes. So, for instance, um, you know, CCPA came out you know, CPRA came out later, the effective dates are rolling around before you have implementing regulations. And so what you have is a law that says you have to do a thing, but you don't have any information on what it is that you're supposed to be doing. Like, what is it that's going to get you to compliance? And so it's almost like putting together what you think is best effort, um, you know, before, because the effective date is still going to be the effective date. Sometimes they'll push it back. Other times they don't. Um, but then, you know, understanding that you're probably going to have to go back and change some some things after the implementing regulations come out. Um, and so, you know, you can get to the end of your project, and I say end loosely, um, you get to the end of your project, and, and it's not like you're done. You're not ever finished, right? Like you've, you've completed all of the milestones that you had in your, your current project plan, but there's always going to be something else to do. Something is going to change. Um, and so just being prepared for that. Um, some some people I know um, have have felt like it's uh, almost like it, it's just like a moving target. You're never going to get there. And so it can be very discouraging almost um, to some folks. And then others um, like myself, you know, kind of just consider it to be more of a challenge. Like, you know, you've always got something to do um, and there's quite a bit of job security there uh, in the privacy space because it's never going to stop evolving. Uh, there's never going to be, um, there's never going to not be a match trims out there, you know, uh, arguing the validity of whatever U.S. Uh, transfer mechanism is is currently in place. You know, there was a safe harbor than privacy shield. Now we've got the, da the data privacy framework and we'll see how long it lasts. Interesting. Now, um so you know you've been uh, you, you, like as you did all kinds of different types of compliance yeah. in the past and since 2016 you've pretty, stayed pretty much all you know privacy 100% of the way so talk about that as far as like you really think you found your uh, your niche here and and uh what 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 is it about privacy compliance that has made you stay in it for uh, so long Sure so I think privacy definitely is my niche. Um, you know, it is what I, from as far as my um, my career, it's what I put the most effort into, you know, from a certification perspective and things like that. Um, so I have the CIPPUS um, certification. I have the CIPM. I also have the FIP. Um, and that one I was, I was very excited to get because it wasn't, you know, a take an exam thing. Like it was a you had to have people come forward and on your behalf state that, you know, this person knows her stuff in privacy and, you know, she's worked in it and, 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 you know, she, she's deserving of the title. Um, and so that was, was something that was very exciting to me for sure. Um, I like privacy, I think mostly because I am also a consumer, right. And so knowing 
on the business side, right? So when you're on the business side, you know what your company or what other companies are doing with data that they get, right? Right. Um, and before all these privacy laws, there were there wasn't a whole lot, you know, to rein them in. Like they're getting all this data for one purpose, and then they're going over here and selling it and and giving it to whoever else and making more money off of it. And it's like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. I didn't give you that so that you could make money off of it selling it to these people. I gave you that so that you know we could do business and do this one thing. Um, and so as a consumer, I feel like that that's kind of what, what really piqued my interest in privacy is that. These laws are, while obnoxious, probably to most people in the business from, you know, from an organizational perspective, as a consumer, it really does put protections in place for you. And it really does give you more control over what companies are allowed to do with your data. And, you know, I just feel like everybody um, deserves to be able to have a say in what big businesses do with with their data. That's my data. Yeah, that's a great perspective. Um, interesting. Now. So let's uh, keep going on in your in your privacy uh, career. So then you moved in 2020 to I think it's pronounced Jamf. So uh, get get into that. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I went over to Jamf. Jamf is a mobile device management software company that um, that does you know mobile device management software for Apple products primarily. Um, I believe that they're getting more into the Microsoft space, but um, they're kind of like the the Apple shop for, you know, mobile device management for organizations that have a great platform um, that makes it super easy for companies who um, utilize uh, Apple products to push updates to laptops and phones and, you know, things like that without individuals out in the field having to bring stuff into an office to, you know, receive updates and things like that. Um, when I started there, the the privacy team was uh, fairly small. Um, it was situated within the legal department. That's something, you know, that, that changes depending on organization, you know, where the privacy department sits. Sometimes it's in legal, sometimes it's in infosec, sometimes it's in like a compliance area or a risk area. Um, and I've, I've kind of been a part of all of them. Um, but you know, that's where you start to see kind of the importance of the, standard contractual clauses in contracts with with our clients. So at Jamf, you know, we had all these different clients who were using our software. Um, some of them were international. Well, we were based in the U.S. And so it was always important that we have some kind of contractual clauses, you know, whichever ones were were valid at the time. So there was a you know big project to get the updated um, DPAs in place. And then around the time that I was leaving there, there was a new project to get them updated to have the new um, EU SECs and things like that. So um, you know, depending on where you're at, you see different sides of of kind of the, the privacy role, right? Yeah, fascinating. Now you move back uh into banking at uh City National Bank. So we'll get into get into that job. I did. So um Cliff, who I mentioned earlier that was um the chief privacy officer when I first started at FIS, um, he had retired. Um and then he got bored being retired. And so he started doing some consulting work and he was working for a consulting firm who had him, you know, filling um, a temporary role at a city national bank as their privacy officer um, while they were, you know, looking for someone. And, um, you know, at some point, I guess they, they had, had not been able to find anyone and, and Cliff reached out to me and asked, you know, would you be interested potentially in, you know, working for, for this bank in California? They're like the, the Hollywood bank. And I was like, really? So I was, you know, looking into it and yeah, they're like the bank to the stars, you know, they, they fund the Oscars and the Tonys and, you know, have big 
you know, big name clients and, and things like that. Um, and so, you know, I interviewed and I went in, uh, met some amazing people, Nick, uh, Ginger that you interviewed previously being one of those people. Um, and just, you know, made a ton of really good connections there. Um, for, you know, uh, City National Bank is owned by RBC out of Canada, Royal Bank of Canada. And um, most of the U.S. business was situated with City National Bank. There were some other areas of the business that had, um, you know, U.S. presence, but the, the largest piece of it came from City National. Um, and so, you know, I got the, the kind of bolt-on role of the RBC um, combined U.S. Um, operations, privacy, kind of advisor. So kind of keeping an eye on what was happening in some of those other U.S. Um, entities from a privacy perspective and, you know, helping them with questions and things like that. Um, but we put together a really nice privacy program there. Um, we had, you know, uh, a full-on, you know, program document with um, policies and standards and procedures that they all rolled up, you know, nice and neatly together that, that gave the organization an understanding of why privacy was important and why all employees in the organization need to be concerned about it and how everybody contributes to the success of the organization um, in privacy. And, you know, certainly because the bank itself is located in Los Angeles, there was a, you know, big push to be sure that we were compliant with CCPA and then dealing with, you know, the, the, the changes that were coming with CPRA. So like I said earlier, you have a regulation that's going into effect and you don't even have you know, full implementing regulations. And so you go to the regulatory change management group and they're like, hey, are you going to be compliant with this by the effective date? By the effective date? And it's like, well, here's what I'll tell you. I'll tell you that we have, you know, worked with people in the industry. We have sought direction from outside counsel. Um, this is how we all feel. The implementing regulations are, are, this is what we think they're going to say when they come out. So this is what we've been working towards. And this is what will be done before the effective date of the regu of the regulation. But when those implementing regs come out, there's probably going to be some stuff that we hadn't thought of that we're going to have to go back and do. So does that mean we're not going to be compliant by your standards? I'm not sure, um, you know, but it is what it is. And so that was something that was always difficult to try to, you know, get into that, that very black and white. Here's the regulation. Here's the effective date. Are you 100% compliant? And it's like, eh, well, you know, to the best of our ability, we are. If something comes out of those implementing regs and we have to do some more, you know, we may have to do some more. So don't freak out when we come back saying, hey, we got a couple of other things we have to do. We just found out about them. Right. And you couldn't have been in a better position anyways before <laughs> those. So, Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Now, you talked about really throughout your career, even when you were, you know, a teller right out of college and just really all throughout your career, you've sort of been telling average people why they should care about different things, you know, and as a teller, you were telling the uh, Marines why they should care about their finances and in privacy, you know, you've been doing the, the privacy trainings and and uh, talking to just as people as, a, you know, as a consumer, why it's important. I guess get into that maybe passion of yours and how you do it as far as explaining, you know, what you do and, um, you know, why, why, what you do is uh, so important. Yep. So, um, when it's funny, most of the time, like when my husband, Matt, when he asks me, or he, if we're talking about something with work or if somebody asks him what I do and he's like, man, you're going to have to ask her, like, I can't explain it. You know, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. Like if you don't work in this space, you're not really probably paying attention to what's happening with privacy law. Um, 
you know, but I, I used to always encourage people. There was the, the documentary on Netflix a couple of years back about the Cambridge Analytica um, mm -hmm. stuff that happened. I'm like, you need to watch this. Like, this is what I'm talking about when it comes to protecting your private data, right? You put all your information out there on Facebook and what you're doing just by saying, you know, yes, I accept you're not reading the terms and conditions. I get it. Nobody does. That's fine. But you're putting all this stuff out there and you're inadvertently giving this huge company access and permission to do all kinds of things with your data. And then you didn't even realize this, but you also gave them your permission to go and scrape stuff off of other people's profiles and, you know, all those things. And so, you know, that was one, that's one of the things I would, you know, tell people to go and watch, like, this is why you need to be concerned about what's going on with your data. And then normally when I give the example about like the data sales, it's like, look, if you give your information to your bank so that you can open a bank account, you gave it to them so that they could, you know, accept your direct deposits and you can write some checks and you get a debit card and go on about your business. Well, if that bank was then also taking your stuff and selling it to advertisers so that, you know, they could make additional profit, like, is that why you gave them your data? It's not why I gave them my data. I don't want them to do that. And if they are doing it, I want to be able to tell them not to do it anymore. Right. Yeah. Great. Uh, great explanation there. Um, so now get into a little bit of your uh, current job. You've been there for about a year at uh, API Group. Yeah. So um, I started back in February at API Group. Um, my current position sits within the uh, legal department. And so um, there's, you know, it's legal and compliance. And so I work with a, a lot of the attorneys um, on, you know, contract changes, um, reviewing third party vendors and stuff like that. And so what we're working on is, you know, putting together a good U.S. program right now. So we had an acquisition a couple of years back um, that had a very large international component to it. The acquisition came along with a pretty pretty decent um, established privacy program because of the GDPR aspect. Um, and so what we're working on now is, you know, building out more of what we need to have built out in the States. Um, there's not as much consumer impact in this particular business as there is, you know, like in banking, but there's most certainly employee information and there is some consumer impact there. So, you know, working with the business to be sure that we are, um, you know, where we, that we know where our data is. Um, data mapping is not required in the U.S., but we're going to be doing that in the U.S. because we've, we've done it in Europe. We think just from a business perspective that it makes sense to have similar documentation for all areas of the business. Um, so that way we're just more in tune with where our data is, what kind of data we have. Um, some of the states, as you know, are you know putting in, in place you know the, the data risk assessment type processes. We're doing those as well. We're doing the same thing in the states that we were doing over in Europe already hmm. for GDPR because you know there's absolutely zero downside to evaluating risk for, you know, even though it's not required, right? If it's not, it may not be required in the state that you live in, but from a company perspective, there's zero downside to evaluating what privacy risk might exist for a project, for a new vendor, or, um, you know, any, any change to personal data that you may be making. So, um, you know, we're kind of, we're, we're working to, you know, get all of that built out. And um, I'm just a team of one right now. So it's, it's oh. me, myself, and I, but I have made a lot of really great um, connections around the organization, have some um, great friends that I've made over in information security, and I'm kind of tagging along with a lot of their initiatives to be sure that we get that data privacy um, piece evaluated, you know, as well as the security piece. Interesting. And, and like you said, a lot of privacy teams are uh, pretty small, you know, you're just 
the a team of one over there. So talk about that as far as, you know, working uh just either with yourself or working with maybe one other person and how do you kind of convince everybody else in the uh, organization that you know what you're doing is you know they, they should uh they should comply with it also yeah so that's where that organizational culture comes into play and why it's so important to have um you know if you're a, a privacy person working in an organization that doesn't find privacy to be important you're not going to get anywhere with it. Nobody's going to listen to you. You've really got to have that support from the top and the messaging to the organization about why privacy is important has got to come from the top. And so um, I have been very fortunate to have organizations that have had, you know, strong leadership um, and support for privacy and the things that we're doing and, you know, have had no shortage of, um, you know, help from other teams um, beyond my own because yeah a lot of times it's just me over here kind of doing my own thing me or maybe me and maybe one other person um you know so having those connections into other teams that can say hey there's something that's that that this group is doing that i think you need to be aware of um you know so you you find existing processes um that you can kind of insert yourself into so i've got you know um the project management process. I've got a little, you know, trigger question in there now. Is there is there personal data involved in this project? And if yes, all right, these folks got to come over here and talk to me. Mm. Um, and we got to, you know, discuss the privacy elements, you know. So um, trying to utilize information that may have been collected by other teams already for another purpose, you know, to, to reuse it for um, the evaluation of privacy risk is something that I always try to do because, you know, nobody wants to answer the same questions multiple times for different people. And we don't want to put that on our business stakeholders either. So, you know, the, 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 the organizational um, inroads that you make with other teams, super, super important, um, especially when you're, you're a small to one person team. Yeah, that's a great perspective. Now, Looking uh, to the future, you know, of course, uh, you talk a little bit about being interested in uh, what's happening in, in AI and to talk about, you know, what you see, I guess, as far as your career and the different things you're interested in. Um, so I'm super interested in, you know, learning more about artificial intelligence. So, um, you know, not having an IT background, you know, that's not something that I've had a ton of exposure to beyond, you know, just like what any other person has had exposure to. Um you know, around the world from the AI perspective, the, the chat GPT stuff, it's fascinating to me how that works. Um, but it also can be a bit alarming to someone in the, the privacy profession, um, just thinking about all of the data that's out there and, and how easily accessible it will be to um, artificial intelligence um, avenues like chat GPT or, you know, other robotic type thing. So, you know, you, you think about it from the consumer perspective and, um, you know, if you, if there's a bunch of data out there that you, that you didn't necessarily or intend to um, consent to having out in the world, it now may be being used to populate someone's um, report, or, you know, it may be used by a future employer uh, for, you know, one reason or another, or it might be used for, there's a whole multitude of, of, of things. So I think that as, as um, advances in AI come out, I think it's going to be important for privacy professionals to have a good understanding of how it works so that they can ask the right questions when it comes to the privacy risk evaluation. Yeah, uh, great point. And uh, so 
you know, looking back at your career, what are some of the uh, steps you've taken and, and things you've done that have really propelled you to get to where you are today? Um, so, you know, like I said, I don't think anybody starts out thinking they're going to be in compliance. Um, you know, so, so kind of similar to the, the HR thing, I feel like if there's, if, if privacy is something that you want to be involved in, um, then I would, you know, recommend applying for those, um, those privacy positions as they become available. If you aren't able to get in, um, you know, in a privacy role or you aren't sure yet if that's something that interests you, um, you may look into positions that might have an element of privacy related to them. Um, you know, I would say if you're in information security, I would say that it would be important to um, focus on, you know, the personal data aspect. That's that's one of the things that, you know, kind of people don't necessarily think about when it comes from the information security perspective. Personal data obviously is extremely important, but that's what privacy focuses on is the personal data elements as opposed to like just your quote, confidential information. So, you know, similar to how I, you know, went for an, uh, a position that gave me experience in certain areas. If you're interested in privacy, you know, there's tons of resources out there. The IPP is a great resource. There's a lot of free resources out there, um, you know, to learn more about privacy. And I would say anybody who's, you know, interested um, in, in privacy, you know, do the research, you know, be in tune with what's going on. Um, if the company that you're, you're with doesn't have a privacy program, you know, maybe talk with somebody in a leadership position about why what it is an organization's doing might necessitate, you know, um, some sort of a, a privacy department or an, an individual to at least keep an eye on it and volunteer for such positions. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, excellent advice. And with that, we'll wrap up the uh, the podcast here. I'll read the rhyme and we'll sign off. So All right. uh, Nicole is from Arkansas. How did her career lead to privacy law? She began work she began work selling CDs at Record Rack. The GDPR led her down the privacy track and uh it was such a such a pleasure uh, having you Nicole on the podcast today. Thanks Noah. It was great getting to chat with you.